Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Shane Stranahan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. Um, our guests, we have, we're going to have a conversation about the Biden-Putin, I'm sorry, Biden-Xi Jinping summit, the virtual summit that took place yesterday, where Biden and his, um, um, the president of China basically had a conversation on issues that the U.S., you can call it red lines, but you can also call it issues of cooperation between the two countries. So to have a conversation on how this turned out, the results of it, and even the reason for this conference to take effect in and of itself, we're joined with Carl Ja. Carl Ja is the host of Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions and their history, culture, and politics. Um, Carl, thank you for joining us, man. How are you doing this morning? Hey, thank you for inviting me back. Um, I'm sorry about yesterday. The time change really messed me up. I I can't. I have to readjust my my calculation of time zones. No, no, no worries, no worries. I know if you're um, if you just kind of had this thing in your head at this time equals to my time, and then you know that stuff changes overnight. Well, it gets a little weird, especially if it's you know didn't take it into account. So I totally understand it. Um, so Biden and Xi Jinping have a virtual summit. And in listening to these guys have this conversation, one of the things that Biden said, you know, next time we need to do this in person, Xi Jinping also kind of made that point. It would have been nice if we could have did this in person, um, but with issues of COVID and everything else, that would have been somewhat problematic. Now, why did they have this meeting? What was the main impetus for this meeting? And do you think that there was anything accomplished in, this, in these talks or in these conversations? Yeah, I think uh, in the Biden's uh, opening statement, he pretty much laid out the reason why uh, they want to have this meeting. First of all, this meeting was requested uh, by uh, by Biden's White House. So in his opening statement, Biden said that we should, our, it's our responsibility as leader of China and United States to ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict whether intended or unintended. I think that is a real reason why Biden requested the summit. As I have mentioned before on this show, I believe that Biden and his team have recognized that, you know, China and United States are veered into a very dangerous waters and they want to kind of stop the crazy descent into more confrontation. And I think that's what why Biden requested the summit and, and why, you know, it, it took place. Why do you think that Xi Jinping went to, I mean, why do you think that Xi Jinping went along with it? That might be a very easy question for you to answer, but. Oh, yeah, uh, it, because, you know, from, from China's perspective, China has always wanted to have a more friendly and co- cooperative relationship with the United States. I mean, Xi Jinping said it as much in his own opening statement. Uh, he said that, uh, you know, this is a, it's actually pretty interesting to contrast Xi's statement with Biden's statement because Biden still mentioned about competition. What he's saying is let's not have the competition veer into open conflict. But what the Xi Jinping, what Xi Jinping actually said is that we should um, we should share our uh, shoulder our share of international responsibility to work together, advance the global cause of world peace and development, yada, yada, yada. But then what he, uh, the, 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 the part that he um, stressed is that U.S., China and U.S. should respect each other, coexist in peace, pursue win-win cooperations. And, uh, and he, he mentioned that the 
sound and steady China-U.S. relationship is required for for um, a stable, peaceful, stable international environment, including finding effective response to climate change and COVID. So I think from China's perspective, it, it welcomes this overture from Biden administration for a more relaxed uh, U.S.-China relationship, you know, a, a step back from the confrontation of the Trump years. Um, Carl, we have a clip from that meeting, and I'm going to get your take on what's said in this clip. Let's play this clip. Today, we're finally getting this done. So my message to the American people is this. Yeah, yeah we can cut this one. Um, it was the clip between um, Biden and Xi Jinping, but it's okay. We, we can um, we can skip that one. Um, so let me ask you this. It, was anything accomplished for this? Was this a positive accomplishment? Uh, I think it's a possible accomplishment. Just the fact that they both sides actually met, and and actually both sides recognize there is a problem that, that in the U.S.-China relationship that need to be addressed. I mean, uh, there's no joint statement produced after the meeting. Uh, there's no like uh, uh, breaking announcement. But the, the fact that this meeting even took place, I, I take it as a very encouraging sign. Um, as I have mentioned before on this show as well, I. I uh, you know, like I said before, you, with the trade talks, with a with a uh, signaling that U.S. want to work with China on global on the climate change. These are all kind of signals from the Biden administration to uh, kind of step back from the Cold War to that old rhetoric. And and I think even if there is no concrete result from this meeting, it's an encouraging sign just uh, because both sides recognize that. They need to work together. Well, yeah, that is positive, if nothing else. It puts me in the mind of the meeting with Biden and um, Putin, where it, it was this feel of, okay, this is, relationship is getting out of control. Um, we can't predict what the other country is doing in this. And this, you know, unpredictability can lead to certain conflict and confrontation. Um, and Biden seemed to have wanted to bring this down. What did China want out of this, by the way? And what do you think Biden wanted out of this? Do you think it was just, we need to bring down hysteria and we need to have. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, as I said, uh, what Xi Jinping, what China want is to also to cool off the rhetoric and to have a more friendly relationship with, with United States. You know, for example, uh, there's still many outstanding issues like the U.S. Uh, trade sanctions, um, the, uh, the, the issue on uh, basically, U.S. Bl uh, blockade of the semiconductor shipment to China. These are all the things that that China desperately wants to 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 um, go away. Basically, you know, China would much prefer to return back to the U.S.-China relationship pre-Trump, right? Um, I don't know if that's going to happen, but that's basically the expressed desire. Uh, and, and that's why I think Xi Jinping called uh, Biden an old friend, because these two, they have been working together back in the days of Obama administration. Uh, in fact, I found a clip online of uh, of both Xi Jinping and Biden as the vice president of each country visiting a Chinese high school back in 2011, where uh, Biden actually gave a speech to the Chinese high school kids saying, oh, uh, the President Obama and I, we 
we do not fear the rise of China. In fact, we welcome the rise of China. Man, how fast <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, the I, I think China would much prefer to go back to that kind of rhetoric uh, of, of, you know, talking of partnership and engagement than, uh, you know, Cold War 2.0. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I think, and actually I read, um, I was monitoring the, the tweets from the Chinese government officials and, uh, you know, the, the Chinese uh, the spokesperson for the Chinese government, uh, Hua Chunying, she tweeted out, the President Xi Jinping just concluded his virtual meeting with President Joe Biden. The meeting is wide ranging, in-depth, candid, constructive, substan subs substantive, and productive. It helps increasing mutual understanding. So from the Chinese government side, uh, you know, they are halting this as a big success, as, as you know, like, a, like, a, uh, you know, the two sides are now finally uh, talking to each other. Uh, that, that's interesting. Carl, I, we're going to go into a break, but this is a, admittedly a slightly a bit of a tangent of a question, but it relates to something we were talking about before we brought you in. And as we're going into a break, I figure it's convenient to ask it. And then we can just come back and reset some things because I don't. It, it's not what we're planning on talking about. It has to do with inflation and economics, sort of, and and China and the relationship between China and the United States. China, I know, has had its own monetary policy, its own interesting economic policy, effectively keeping its currency uh, from getting too valuable as a part of the whole push to keep exporting goods and to keep the price of those goods uh, competitive. And this has been paired with among the population, like it, you know, very high savings rates compared to what we see in the United States. So culturally, there's an interesting thing going on there where in China, both in the government and among people, they have different habits than Americans do. And I'm sure along with those habits, there are different ideas about the economy and about things like inflation, deflation, the value of your currency, manufacturing, all this stuff tied together. Anyway, Jamal and I were having this conversation as a lot of people are in the States right now about the economy and inflation, where the economy is going. I'm just curious, admittedly, like I said, a tangent of a question, from a sort of like cultures coming together perspective, what do you think Americans might do well to learn from the Chinese perspective on managing your currency, managing your economy, those kinds of things? I hope that makes sense, Carl. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think that, you know, the high saving rate really is a cultural trade. I don't know if, you know, U.S. Americans can actually learn anything from China. You know, the high high, high uh, saving rate in China, is, it comes from the fact, you know, my parents' generation, they lived through the Great Famines of 1959 to 1962. Yeah. You know, they, they lived through some really hard times. So they almost got it in their DNA to save as much as they can for the rainy days. Um, I mean, I, I guess I, I retain some of the heritage, even though I live in the United States for 30 years. You know, I realized when I was reading the the, the saving level in China, I, I realized I was save I was also saving like 30 to 40 percent of my income. So I was saving them basically on the Chinese saving level. Um, so I, I yeah I don't know if that can translate into in the American context because just we are a consumer society. It's just it's just very different. Um, but in terms of um, in terms of uh, uh, um, a monetary policy, 
I think Bank of China is not too too different from Bank of uh, from the central bank uh, in U.S. from the Fed Federal Reserve right now. Uh, pretty much all the central bank all around the world are printing tons of money <laughs> and you know trying to stay stave off crisis. So in that regard, you know China China's monetary policy has more similarity with the the U.S. Uh, U.S. Monet, monetary policy, but uh, in the for cultural level, cultural trades, I just I just don't think uh, imitation those kinds of things work like that. Well, it, and in the states here, and I hear you on that. Thank and thank you everyone. We're again we're going to go into a break. In the states, we had the Great Depression, but right after that, we had the Boomer Generation and like the rise of credit cards and the rise of the going into debt. And so I remember like my great grandmother, who I never met, I'm sad to say, great grandmother, child of the Great Depression, my grandmother. Her kid sort of grown on those habits, but then she kind of, you know, started to go in the traditional 50s. Okay, we have a lot of money and we'll spend it kind of thing. And uh, that's carried forward. And so I, my point is comparing it with what you were talking about with the, the famine uh, back in the 20s, 30s, famines. Um, there's this, uh, you know, the Great Depression is not exactly the same event by any means. Similar kind of memory, but it was interrupted by this rise of credit. And so in the States, I feel like we've gotten captured by that. We're going to go into a break, though. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Stranahan. We are joined by Carl Ja, host of the Silk and Steel podcast, focused on China and surrounding regions. We'll be coming back to that in just a minute. Be right back. Fault Lines. Breaking news, expert analysis, and exclusive stories, all in one place. Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Want to know how international issues fit into local ones and how local issues fit into international ones with the historical context to tie them together? Well, we're bringing it to you all by any means necessary. Tune in weekdays from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to hear me, Jackie Lukeman, alongside my co-host, Sean Blackman. By any means necessary, your guide to connecting the social, political, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Shane Stranahan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And joining us to continue this conversation on the Biden-Xi Jinping summit meeting or virtual summit that took place yesterday, we have Carl Jia. Carl Jia is host of Silk and Steel podcast focused on China and surrounding regions, their history, culture, and their politics. Carl, thank you again for continuing to join us. Oh, thank you. Anytime. So... I have to, we have the clip. Um, let's play this clip, and I want to get your take on what's being said after the fact. Good evening to everyone here in the United States, and good morning to you, Mr. President in Beijing. Good to see you, Mr. President, and your colleagues. It's the first time for us to meet virtually. Although it's not as good as a face-to-face -face meeting, I'm very happy to see my old friend. As I've said before, it seems to me our responsibility as leaders of China and the United States is to ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict, whether intended or unintended. Just simple, straightforward competition. And it seems to me we need to establish some common sense guardrails to be clear and honest where we disagree and work together where interests intersect 
especially on vital global issues like climate change. None of this is a favor to either of our countries, uh, what we do for one another, but it's just responsible world leadership, and you're a major world leader, and so is the United States. As the world's two largest economies and the permanent members of the UN Security Council, China and the United States need to increase communication and cooperation. A sound and steady China-US relationship is required for advancing our two countries' respective development and for safeguarding a peaceful and stable international environment, including finding effective responses to global challenges, such as climate change, which you referenced, and the COVID pandemic. I now look forward to a wide-ranging and a comprehensive discussion with you, Mr. President, on overarching issues. Thank you. Um, Carl, what happens when one of those guardrails is on something like Taiwan? That's it. When he said that, my thought was, yeah, what about Taiwan? Isn't China going to also get across their guardrails, meaning here's our red lines? It's not just going to be one of those things that the U.S. dictates. Um, on issues of Taiwan, how does this particular meeting help? Oh, I think uh, this, on this issue, Xi Jinping actually reiterated China's red line on Taiwan. China clearly said that um, basically independence is going to be the red line. And, and she actually said for those in Taiwan seeking independence uh, with, and their supporters in the United States are playing with fire. And, and the, the, the Xi Jinping's actual uh, speech, he said China is patient and seeks peaceful reunification with great sincerity and effort. But if the Taiwan secessionists provoke or even cross a red line, we will have to take decisive measures. So this is actually just a reiteration of China's position that China is aiming for peaceful reunification unless uh, you know, Taiwan cross a red line, which is declared formal independence. And they think that is communicated clearly to the United States. Well, I bet there are a couple of other things that come in here. For one thing, the CIA, the recent revelations of the CIA doing training on the ground in Taiwan, that's another lesser but still significant red line, isn't it? I mean, if, you know, if we have a number of red lines and some of them have already been crossed, that's a, by its definition pretty ambiguous. What do you think is the actual, if there's going to be a tripwire here, is independence, the full declaration of independence that? Because a game, or not a game, but what I see the U.S. doing here is obviously militarily providing support so in the events of some outright military conflict we get involved, but also politically, culturally, diplomatically, trying to winnow away Taiwan from China, you know, for as long as you can. In the sense, the longer you can keep your foot in that door, the longer you can keep this separate, the more legitimacy you give to the idea that it is a distinct nation, which seems to be the long game. Anyway, Carl, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I think that Xi Jinping also addressed that issue as well. And he, he phrased it, you know, he didn't say Biden. He said some, uh, some people in in U.S. would like to, uh, you know, trying to change the, change the status quo. And that's, that's not something, uh, that, that, that's not a wise course of action. And, and, you know, this, I, and this may be referring to the U.S. congressional delegation that just recently visited Taiwan. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, the U.S. is, uh, is encouraging Taiwan to seeking more international recognition. That's also something that China definitely frowned upon. And, 
And on the side of Biden, they actually reiterate that U.S. will abide by the longstanding U.S.-China policy as, as a form of reassuring Beijing that, that you know, the fundamental policy of U.S. has not changed. So I think, uh, you know, like I think there is, uh, like we talked about on this show before, there is elements of the U.S. government that very much like to escalate the tension in order to keep feeding the military-industrial complex. Um, and that, unfortunately, has led us to this moment where, you know, Biden administration felt they have a need to reach out to Xi Jinping and reassure them that, uh, like we we don't actually we don't actually want confrontation. Yeah, confrontation seems like it would be the worst of both worlds. Um, are they going to have any future meetings in in this um, in this similar vein? Um, <laughs> okay, so some somebody mentioned that uh, the you know the the, the topic of uh, uh, the White House envoy to Beijing Winter Olympics didn't come up. And also, Xi Jinping didn't send the invitation. Um, so I think there, there obviously is still a lot, a, a lot of issues were left open. Um, I mean, it's, this is more of a kind of a show on both sides. They're they're willing, the the willingness to work together to to um, you know to 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 veer away from from conflict, as Biden says. I think that that's. That's more important than any kind of concrete result. And I'm sure they're, they're working, the, uh, the officials on both sides are working furiously in the background trying to set up to some something in the future. We just don't know yet. Mm. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay, another side of this. Uh, Taiwan, like I, I want to sort of double down on this for a second. Taiwan, culturally, if the United States succeeds in, in keeping them out of this sphere, would China, I'm just trying to play this out decades down the line, assuming we don't get into an outright conflict, and you're right about the, the military-industrial complex just wanting to make more money, and this being effectively a long-term grift process, uh, which is admittedly a part of it, but then and genuinely there are, I'm sure, geopolitical ends here. Say two, three decades down the line, Taiwan is still not effectively integrating in, in, integrated into China. America, though decadent, remains on the scene somehow as a major player, sort of determining things in its own way, so it says... And Taiwan, again, still not part of China, has drifted further, has gotten more woke, which it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that Taiwan is broadly more woke than China, and that's not an arbitrary thing to bring up, I think, politically or culturally. Does China try to reintegrate at that point? Diplomatically, politically, is it worth it if, if it's so distinct? Because I'm trying to play this out, assuming it doesn't come to a war, assuming down the line, what does this actually turn into? This has to be on the mind of everybody weighing on this subject in the State Department in the United States and from the Chinese end too, Carl. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the, the, it's funny that you brought up that, that Taiwan's culture seems more woke uh, because Taiwan is very much influenced by the U.S. culture. Yes. Being a satellite state of the United States, you know, Taiwan is uh, economically, culturally very much dependent on the U.S. and it follows the U.S. trend, cultural trend, very closely. You know, whatever happens in the U.S., it gets imported and consumed locally on Taiwan. So that that explains the cultural drift. Um, but you mentioned two decades down the down the line. About so a minute left, if, by the way, Carl. If if the current projection, if the current trend holds, we know that two decades down the line. 
Chinese economy will be uh, will, will be twice the size of U.S. economy. The, the, you know, China, China, it, it, it's basically at a point where uh, right now the Taiwan issue is basically a U.S.-China issue. It's not really between. Uh, I mean, Taiwan, they don't really have much say in this. But two uh, uh, two decades down the line, U.S. will increasingly be a less of a factor because. Just, just, a, just a by the, the, the balance of power would have shifted. You know, China would have be much, much larger economically and a military power than it is today. I hear you and agree, and I think that's something that everybody needs to take into their calculations. I I've got other thoughts on this, but this is a longer conversation. It's fascinating whenever we get into it, and we keep kind of pushing in different directions when we talk with you, Carl. Thank you for joining us again. Carl Zha, for those listening, host of the Silk and Steel podcast that's focused on China and surrounding regions in their history, culture, and politics. Follow Carl on Twitter at Carl Zha. Follow that podcast on Twitter at Steel Silk N. You're listening to Fault Lines back in just a minute.